What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. This morning, my guest is Kristalina Georgieva, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund and the person who oversees our global economy. Uh, Madam Director, uh, welcome back to Washington Post Live. It's great to have you. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, wonderful to be with you. So uh, I want to start with the issue that I think the whole world is focused on uh, this week, and that is the danger of uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and a, a war in Eastern Europe that would be unlike anything that we've seen in, in many decades. I want to ask you first about the strictly economic the consequences of a conflict there. Have your economists and have you personally begun to, to make some rough projections about what a conflict in Ukraine might mean for global growth, for energy prices, for inflation, for all the issues that the IMF worries about? At the time of higher uncertainty, for growth in the world economy. Geopolitical tensions only make the situation more complex. And we already see that in terms of impact on energy prices. We very much hope that there would be a diplomatic solution because of the people of Ukraine uh, and also because of the necessity to sustain the recovery of the world economy. The two channels of impact are going to be energy prices already elevated globally, but especially in Europe, and also Ukraine being a breadbasket, uh, interruption of grain supplies from Ukraine can add to pressures on food prices that have also already gone up. It is so very important to find a pathway to reduce these uh, tensions uh, for the sake of Ukraine, for the sake of the European and world economy. And let me ask one more uh, practical economic question. Uh, the US and its NATO allies have warned Russia that if there is an invasion of Ukraine, the response would be uh, massive economic sanctions at a level uh, the U.S. has argued has, has not been seen before. Tell us about what uh, uh, consequences you think that might have. Obviously, there'd be consequences for Russia, but what knock-on effects would be likely in the rest of the global economy from a sanctions regime as strict as what people are talking about? Uh, as it has been described, uh, it would uh, inevitably uh, create some interruptions in terms of how financial transactions are being uh, done. 
uh, the most uh, severe of the proposed uh, sanctions is uh, uh, concerning SWIFT, and that is <clears throat> a, an element of the functioning of the financial system uh, that uh, inevitably would have a um, um, spillover impact uh, should it be uh, triggered. But again, what we hope for is for pragmatism to prevail. It is not in anybody's interest uh, to continue to exacerbate tensions at a time when the world economy is struggling to retain momentum and uh, is faced with multiple challenges, and I'm sure we will talk about them. We, we will. Uh, just a final uh, practical economic question before we leave the, the, the ominous uh, uh, issue of, of Ukraine. In the event of uh, an invasion, a conflict, sanctions, and the disruptions that would flow from that that you just described, would the IMF stand prepared to provide uh, liquidity and other resources that might be needed on an emergency basis by the world uh, uh, due to the disruptions that would be caused by conflict? Well, let, let's start from Ukraine. Uh, we have a, a program, ongoing program with Ukraine, and we have about $2.2 billion available to disburse to Ukraine between now and June under this program. Uh, Ukraine has been acting responsibly to build up reserves. It has also benefited from the special drawing rights uh, allocation uh, we have done last year. Uh, and in that sense, uh, we see our avenue to support specifically the Ukrainian uh, economy quite clear over the next months. Uh, if we are in a situation in which uh, there are spillover impacts uh, that require more engagement from the IMF for other countries, um, of course, we would be there. We have still about $700 billion lending capacity. But the most important role we play and we will continue to play is in assessing what are the impacts of action or inaction and then making prudent policy recommendations how best to handle the situation as it, as it evolves. So you can be sure that we are keeping a watching eye and, of course, thinking about uh, the uh, uh, possible consequences, what can be done uh, collectively, not just by the IMF, but the international community working together to secure the recovery from the COVID crisis and also to support what is in front of us, a very important transition to a green and digital economy. So we, we see the case uh, we are describing in Ukraine within a global context that requires such a strong focus on priorities. And again, I repeat my message, a uh, sensible diplomatic solution is the best way forward. Uh, final personal uh, question. Uh, one uh, aspect of your remarkable uh, biography is that you grew up in Bulgaria in the years before the end of the Cold War, when it was part of the Soviet sphere of influence. 
I, I think we've all uh, worried about a return to the kind of rhetoric and conflict and divisions in Europe that were part of your uh, childhood. Just ask you if if you'd reflect on uh, on uh, the dangers of, of returning to to that kind of of Europe of divisions and conflict. Uh, it is heartbreaking to see that there is a risk of again confrontation, and the uh, consequences of this confrontation is ordinary people suffer. My brother is right now in Ukraine in Kharkov visiting uh, his mother-in-law and he tells me that the pictures from the 80s and 90s we lived through are back. Uh, stores emptied, people anxious, not knowing what tomorrow will bring. Uh, so when we talk about geopolitical tensions, we need to remember it is ordinary people who bear the brunt of their impact. And uh, if we can prevent a repeat of what we know was painful for so many hundreds of millions of people, that would be a very noble objective. Uh, and I hope we will pursue it. Thank you for bringing that uh, personal perspective to this crisis. Let me turn now to your basic work as managing director of the IMF, and, and that's uh, overseeing global economic trends. The IMF uh, just issued in, in late January uh, a pretty bleak assessment uh, of trends. The, the headline was rising caseloads, meaning COVID caseloads, disrupted economy and higher inflation. You said in re releasing the report, I, I would have liked very much to have had a more optimistic outlook at the beginning of the year, but the reality is we're looking at a somewhat weaker momentum of the recovery and higher uncertainties, more risks in 2022. So I want to unpack that uh, outlook uh, document that you that you released, starting with with COVID, uh, the the uh, rising caseloads, um, the con continued burden of of the pandemic uh, two years on. Uh, obviously, is a fact of life we all live with. Everybody's struggling to think when we'll begin to uh, crest and, and return to, uh, more to normal. What are, what are your economists, analysts, the people mm. who help you think about uh, the world economy, think about the, the, the course for, for COVID around the, around the world? Uh, well, let me start from the good news, and it is the recovery continues. Yes, at a slower pace, but we need to remember that in the beginning of this crisis, we feared a Great Depression. We feared 10% contraction of the world economy in 2020. That didn't happen because of the coordinated, strong fiscal and monetary policy response. In other words, helping households and helping businesses through a period of standstill in the world economy. But the momentum is slowing for two reasons. One is a slowdown uh, in the two big engines of the world economy, US and China. And the second one, as you rightly, po rightly pointed out, uh, is COVID. 
it is still with us, it causes restrictions, and these restrictions translate into interruptions of global supply chains. That on its own is a problem because it adds pressure on prices to go up. And in that environment, the way I would describe 22 is uh, navigating an obstacle course with the three big obstacles being still COVID, you rightly put your finger on it, but then inflation and the measures we need to take to combat inflation, and then high levels of debt. So going to COVID, we must admit that despite all the progress that has been made in vaccinations, testing and tracing, treatments, we are not yet delivering sufficient support to the countries that are falling behind. 86 countries in 2021 did not reach the target of at least 40% vaccination of their people. In low-income countries, vaccinations are at 5%. In rich countries, at 70%. Why is this a problem? Because what we do is we retain a breeding ground for more and more and more COVID variants. And also because we are interrupting the normal functioning of our economy. One of the big problems we have created over the last two years is this dangerous divergence between the countries that are already reaching their pre-pandemic levels, rich countries, some of the emerging market economies, and everybody else. And uh, what I want to put on the radar screen of our uh, listeners is that for two decades, the world was doing the right thing. There was convergence, poorer countries catching up. That is good for their people. It is also good for peace and security in the world. For the first time in decades, the opposite is happening. Poorer countries are getting poorer and they're getting less stable, more vulnerable. So my main message today is that everywhere we have to build up defense against COVID. Pandemic policy is economic policy. The biggest risk for the performance of the world economy remains this year, COVID and the disruption it causes. So and, uh, continue, continue relentlessly as much as we are now tired of it, continue relentlessly to build this defense. I think, uh, Madam Director, you just answered the, the question I was going to put to you. There is a growing debate in the United States and I think in Europe and other countries too about whether, uh, as we see the peak of the Omicron variant, mm -hmm. uh, it's time to think about returning to something closer to normal. Uh, mm -hmm. Is it time for children in schools to uh, ease uh, mask restrictions is it's one uh, basic part of this mm -hmm. debate. And I'm curious about, about your view. Uh, I think I hear you saying, no, we need to keep 
vigilant for a while longer rather than begin to talk about a return to, to normal? Um, actually, these two things are related. The higher our defenses are, the more we can return to normal. And uh, in that sense, uh, what we see is that when vaccinations rates are very high, when the um, uh, testing and tracing is effective, when there is sufficient capacity to treat patients, we have normalization of economic activities. And this is what we have to pursue. We have learned to live and function with the COVID still around us. But we have to retain our capacity to protect health systems from being overburdened because this is what creates panic. If I get sick, would I be treated? Uh, and to do so, we have all the responsibility to take actions in that regard. Protect yourself, protect your families, protect the functioning of the economy so we can be in a much more normal environment to live and work. Let me ask you about the second part of your January forecast, which is the disrupted recovery. What struck me, uh, Madam Director, wasn't simply lowering the, the forecast for this year, um, it's lower by 1.2 percentage points for the U.S. than had been forecast, uh, lower by eight-tenths of a point for, for China. It's that your forecast going into 2023 next year continues to be bleak and, and in fact, is even lower. Uh, you're forecasting a decline from 5.9% in 2021 to 4.4% uh, in 2022, and then down to 3.8% in 2023. Uh, in that situation of, of continuing slowing growth, should we be thinking more about economic stimulus? That's gotten a little bit of a bad name because of inflation fears, but do you think we need to be thinking more about, about stimulus to prevent that uh, sharp downward slope uh, in, the, in the growth curve? We have to recognize that some of this slowdown is natural because we get a bump when we are overcoming the uh, contraction of the economy. In other words, as countries return to their pre-pandemic levels, it is natural that the growth rate uh, will, if you wish, normalize. But it is also true that before we stepped into this pandemic in 2019, we were concerned about slow growth, low productivity, and uh, also we were concerned about new risks to macroeconomic and financial stability, such as climate shocks. None of this has gone away. And when we look into the future, what we need to concentrate our attention on is how to boost productivity and on that basis rely on a higher growth. Uh, we know some of the um, uh, elements of uh, productivity boost, invest in people, skilled, educated, and also agile, able to move from a job to a job, 
so they can contribute to the economy, invest in research and development, invest in new technologies, because they provide a, um, a potential for higher growth. And also invest in infrastructure, both the normal physical infrastructure, but also the uh, digital infrastructure. So we can see goods and services uh, being better integrated. I am uh, uh, very keen that we don't lose sight that prior to the pandemic, things were not so great. And uh, if you remember, 2019 was also the year of protests in Chile, in uh, Paris, uh, in Lebanon. And what we are seeing today is re-emergence of this protest. What is the fundamental problem that, that pushes people uh, to protest? Well, fairness or the lack of it. And if we think about a major, major factor for economies to be more dynamic, it is for these economies to be more inclusive, that everybody can participate, that women are not left out because they lack childcare or affordable childcare, they can't get into the labor market. Uh, and that issue of inclusiveness of the economy uh, is one that uh, actually is uh, on a weaker footing today because the pandemic, unfortunately, has contributed to increase in inequality within countries, across countries. Uh, and that is uh, where that key investment in people from, from uh, the moment they are able to get into a, a, a preschool throughout their life, uh, I believe is very, very, very important. And removing the barriers for participating in the economy so we can rely on everybody's contribution and do better for all of us. Let me ask you about one more obstacle in the obstacle course, as you described it uh, earlier, and that's inflation. Mm -hmm. You uh, talk uh, in your uh, assessment uh, about the likelihood that uh, assuming inflation expectations uh, stay well anchored is the phrase that, that you use. Mm -hmm. uh, inflation should gradually wane uh, this year. And I, I was left uncertain as to where you are in what's really been an interesting debate among economists about mm -hmm. inflation. There's the Larry Summers view for, for shorthand that says we've got a real problem here and that in, inflation expectations in, in fact are growing. Uh, in, in the global economy. And then uh, our Fed chairman, Jay Powell, uh, has, has said, no, it's largely transitory. He's modified that a bit. But t t tell us where you are in, in, in your judgment about how fundamental the inflationary pressure is today in the global economy. Uh, inflation is a uh, more significant economic and social problem than we thought it would be some months ago. What is that we learned new that helps us to reassess uh, uh, the uh, role of inflation and then on that basis, the necessity to take measures, central banks to step forward, take measures to combat in inflation. First, what we learned is that the interruptions in global supply chains are longer lasting than we initially thought. 
we were hopeful that they would be uh, brought under control as early as in the first half of this year, of 2022. Now we see that they are likely to continue, both because the waves of COVID are still causing the necessity of some restrictions, uh, but also because other factors contribute to pressures on supplies. Let's take one. We moved quite significantly away from services to goods. What does it mean? Much more demand for computers, for, for cars, for um, uh, equipments uh, that are necessary to produce all these goods. And uh, the result is supply just cannot easily catch up. We also were underestimating the uh, climate factor and the pressure it puts on food prices. We have to recognize we are in a more shock-prone uh, world and we, we do need to expect these kinds of shocks to be a factor in the future. And last but not least, we, did, we underestimated somewhat how much delayed consumption, in other words, people getting support through various forms of stimulus and putting it into savings can contribute to a much stronger consumer demand. So we are in a situation in which, indeed, we recognize that it is important not only to rely on inflation expectations being well anchored, but to seek some interventions that would bring inflation under control. Central banks are doing it. They're doing it very carefully in a deliberate manner, communicating their intentions. And the Fed has done a very good job in that regard here in the United States. Uh, in many emerging market economies, steps have been taken even earlier because inflation became a problem of a larger magnitude earlier. Uh, we need to recognize, though, two issues. One, in 22, conditions in different countries are very different. Um, we are talking about fighting inflation in the United States, and in Japan, they're fighting to boost inflation because they cannot reach their 2% uh, target. So there is an accordion of the presence of this problem and therefore measures to be applied. And the second point that we need to be very mindful of is that taking action to combat inflation has to be very well calibrated against the objective of supporting the recovery. So that balancing act is one that, again, needs to be calibrated in every country. And we need to be very agile, data-driven. What is it that we learn? Because uh, when we think about inflation and increase of interest rate, you know, withdrawal of uh, uh, quantitative easing, raising interest rates, that has spillover impact on access to credit and uh, growth opportunities, the theme we were discussing before. It also has spillover impact on other countries. And there we have to be mindful of the other obstacle on our course, and it is higher level of debt. 
in 2020, because we needed to support an economy in standstill, both governments and private sector households borrowed more than they usually would. Debt levels in 2020 reached $226 trillion, the largest increase in debt since the Second World, uh, uh, War, World War. Now, we look at that picture, obviously, a good performance of the economy would allow debt levels to gradually go down on average. But for countries under a high level of debt that happen to be slow on the COVID recovery because of low vaccinations, because of limited space, that change in policy, that increase in rates by the Fed, by other central banks, by their own uh, banks, central banks, that can be uh, quite restrictive for their own recovery. Uh, and I want to finish with this picture. In 2015, 30% of low-income countries were in that distress or close to it. In 2021, they reached 60%. And obviously, we have to be very mindful of measures that can be taken to prevent in different places debt problems turning into a uh, you know, domestic economic catastrophe. And the fund plays a very important role in that regard. So that's a, a, a somber note uh, to, to conclude on, the, the possibility that debt could, could produce a, a in, in your words, a, a catastrophe if it's not managed. Let me ask you a final question, um, Madam Director. Uh, Fed Chairman uh, Powell uh, and the, the Federal Reserve has signaled that it could begin raising interest rates uh, for the first time in three years in March. Um, we've talked about uh, the inflation issues, but also the need to sustain growth uh, and encourage greater growth. Do you think the Fed's um, uh, dis dis apparent decision to begin raising interest rates mm. is a wise one? Uh, given the uh, uh, problem of inflation that, as I said, is an economic concern, it is also a social concern. The Fed is right to be driven by data and take appropriate steps. And let's remember, even with taking these steps, financial conditions remain very accommodative. In other words, we are far from interest rates, real interest rates that can really bite. Uh, and I am confident that the Fed will, will sustain that well-calibrated, well-communicated policy actions so the recovery can continue and at the same time, we can put uh, the brakes on inflation. But again, inflation is a complex phenomenon. It is also a result of COVID. <laughs> so back to my message, we need to think of pandemic actions as economic policy tools, because if we reduce the risks of more variants and more lockdowns, we are helping supplies to come on time 
and we are helping the economy to recover faster. So, uh, Kristalina Georgieva, again, thank you for joining us and offering a lucid tour of the world economy, some compl complicated subjects you made, uh, I think, clear for our viewers. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.